Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today we hear a special tribute to June Jordan. Born on July 9, 1937, June Jordan would become one of the most published African-American writers, authoring well over two dozen books of nonfiction, poetry, fiction, drama, and children's writing. Her West Indian parents, Mildred and Granville Jordan, lived in Harlem, but moved the family to Brooklyn when June was five. While her parents were grateful to America for enabling them to escape poverty in Jamaica, as she described in her 1986 essay, For My American Family, there are many contradictions to be dealt with in the experience of being raised by black immigrants with ambitions for their offspring that far exceeded the urban ghetto. June Jordan emerged into the political and literary scene in the, light, in the late 1960s. When the move, movements demanding attention were for civil rights and women's liberation and anti-war. She received many awards and honors, among them a Rockefeller Grant, the New York Council for the Humanities Award, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Black Writers Conference. June taught at over seven universities, including Sarah Lawrence College, Connecticut College, Yale University, and before she died of breast cancer at the age of 65 in 2002, she was a professor in the African American Studies Department at UC Berkeley, where she founded Poetry for the People, a program that teaches empowerment through the artistic expression of writing and reading poetry. As Nobel Prize recipient Toni Morrison described the sum of June's career, it was 40 years of tireless activism coupled with and fueled by flawless art. Today on Cover to Cover Open Book, we rebroadcast a tribute to June Jordan that was first aired in 2002. Stay with us. So, uh, uh, William Shakespeare wrote this poem. It's a 116th sonnet that starts, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. So this is my black English translation. Don't let me mess up partner happiness because the troubles start and I ain't got the heart to deal. That wouldn't be real about love if I push come to shove just punk. Now hardly, hey, love do not cooperate with cop-out provocations, no. Storm comes, storm go away, but love stays steady if you ready or you not. Love, true love stay steady, true love stay hot. Drew Jordan is the most published African-American writer in history. She burst onto the literary and political scene in the late 1960s on the wings of the civil rights and anti-war movements. Poetry for her was a political act. She used it to shine a fierce light on racism, sexism, homophobia, apartheid, poverty and U.S. foreign policy. We'll be joined by some of June Jordan's dearest friends and colleagues, including Alice Walker, Laura Flanders, and Angela Davis. But we're going to start with June Jordan's own words, a poem June wrote over 10 years ago about the Middle East. It could have been written yesterday. This is June Jordan's poem, Antifada. In detention, in concentration camps, we trade stories, we take turns sharing the straw mat or a pencil. We watch what crawls in and out of the sand. Assalamu alaikum. 
The guards do not allow the blue woolen blanket my family traveled far to bring to this crepuscular angelic cell where my still-breathing infant son and I defy the purgatory implications of a state-created hell. Wa alaikum assalam. The village trembles from the heavy tanks that try to terrify the children. Every day my little brother runs behind the rubble, practicing the tactics of the stones against the rock. In January, soldiers broke his fingers one by one. Time has healed his hands, but not the fury that controls what used to be his heart. Inshallah, close the villages, close the clinics, Close the school, close the house, close the windows of the house, kill the vegetables languishing under the sun, kill the milk of the cows left to the swelling of pain, cut the electricity, cut the telephones, confine the people to the people. Do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Fig trees will grow and oranges erupt from desert holdings on which plastic bullets 70% zinc, 20% glass, and 10% plastic will prove blood-soluble and fertilize the earth where sheep will graze and women no longer grieve and beat their breasts. They will be clean, fine, woven rugs outside a house smelling of cinnamon and nutmeg. Alhamdulillah, so says Iman, the teacher of peace, the shepherd on the mountain of the Lamb, the teacher of peace who will subdue the howling of the lion so that we may kneel as we must five times beginning just after dawn and ending just before dusk in the ibadah of prayer Allah Akbar Allah Akbar Allah Akbar done against the people, the Palestinian people, and a wrong being done against Palestinian people that she felt would have repercussions for people everywhere, Jews, not Jews. She was very concerned in the last years of her life, the last weeks and months of her life, about a rising tide of anti-Semitism that she thought would follow upon the U.S. support of Israeli policies against Palestinians. She saw it simply, she told the truth. That was her, her mandate, her mission in life, to tell the truth. And in 1982, when Israeli forces invaded southern Lebanon and were bombing around the clock Beirut, and the news leaked out of the Israeli assisted, facilitated, perhaps even ordered um, massacre in the refugee camps of Shatila and Sabra, she wrote a poem. She wrote several poems, but one of them, the most memorable of that moment, was um, an apology to all the people of Lebanon, in which she pointed out that every explanation for the Israeli action in Lebanon had been proven to be a lie. She talked about the humanity of the Lebanese people, the Palestinians in the refugee camps, uh, the wrongness of the bombing. She continued to write what she saw to be true and to say, as I said before, you cannot have freedom for some and not for others. You cannot simply decide that some people are less human. She wrote things as she saw them, but at that time, in 82, was no comfortable time to be speaking out for Palestinian rights or for Palestinian people or for saying, we, the Palestinians. It was not a phrase that you heard or didn't pay a price for articulating. She paid a price. This is a haiku uh, 
midday Philadelphia haiku, black men sleep homeless, freeze far away from Iraq, still sleeping, still men. I think she believed, and others would confirm this, that her role, which at that point had been to be a regular contributor to some of this country's mainstream newspapers, the New York Times, to name just one, her role was suddenly shifted into becoming a kind of uh, outsider, um, a... Uh, somebody who was no longer welcome on the op-ed pages, somebody who had to struggle to get her books the kind of attention and respect that they deserved. Twenty-eight books, and yet when she offered to speak out about the Gulf War, when she offered her opinions on the U.S. war now against Afghanistan, she was not welcome on the op-ed pages. And I think that her career was absolutely affected by her forthright, adamant stand for equal rights for everybody against supremacist thinking of all kinds. Her last piece that she wrote for the Book of Essays coming out this fall, Some of Us Did Not Die, is about Israel-Palestine is about the killing of Danny Pearl, is about the dangers of anti-Semitism and of anti-Islamic thinking in this country. She was adamantly concerned with this issue until her death. This first poem uh, I wrote for uh, Richard Nixon. <laughs> so, Chris, is still appropriate. And uh, it's called On Moral Leadership as a Political Dilemma. But I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down a cherry tree, I did. I did that, yes, sirree. I chopped down a cherry tree. And to tell you the truth, see, that was only in the morning, which left a whole day and part of an evening until supper time to continue doing what I like to do about cherry trees, which is to chop them down. Then pick the cherries and roll them into a cherry pie circle and then stomp the cherries, stomp them, jumping them down, hard and heavy, jumping up to stomp them so the flesh leaks and the juice runs loose. And then I get to pick at the pits or else I pick up the cherry pits depending on my mood. And then I fill my mouth completely full of cherry pits and run over to the river, the Potomac, where I spit the cherry pits, 47 to 65 cherry pits spit into the Potomac at one spit. And to tell you the truth some more, if I ever see a cherry tree standing around no matter where, and here let me please be perfectly clear, no matter where I see a cherry tree standing around, even if it belongs to a middle American of moderate means with a two-car family that is falling apart in a respectable, civilized, falling apart, mind your manners manner, <laughs> even then... <laughs> or even if you happen to be corporate rich or unspeakably poor or famous or fashionably thin or comfortably fat or even as peculiar as misguided as a Democrat or even a Democrat, even then, see, if you have a cherry tree and I see it, I will chop that cherry tree down, stomp the cherries, fill my mouth completely with the pits to spit them into Potomac. And I don't know why it is that I cannot tell a lie, but that's the truth. In 1969, Jordan wrote her first book of poetry, Who Look at Me?, which dealt with African-American life. In addition to writing, she held several other jobs, including working as a research associate and writer for the Technical Housing Department of Mobilization for Youth in New York, professor of English and Literature at the City University of New York, Connecticut College, and Sarah Lawrence College, where she remained until 1974. She became a tenured professor at State University of New York at Stony Brook. 
Jordan would later go on to become a professor of African studies and director of poetry for the people at the University of California at Berkeley. I'd like to share with you tonight is the last essay in Affirmative Acts called Break the Law. And I mean, break the law. <laughs> Shortly after federal desegregation of public facilities and interstate travel, I went to Mississippi on assignment for the New York Times. I stayed in an upscale hotel in the downtown district of Jackson, and I remember it was really hot. If you stepped outside for more than 10 minutes, you'd eagerly trade your camera and your rental car for a piece of soap in a long, cold shower. So one afternoon, I thought I'd take a quick swim in the pool. I switched to my bathing suit, grabbed a towel, and flip-flopped down the hall. But when I reached the pool area, shivering of fear, goosebumped all over my skin. There was no one there. It was very dark. You could barely see the water or its concrete boundaries. Inside, my mouth tasted like blood, and I stood shivering for several minutes. I was afraid to move. What was going to happen to me? I had forgotten, or I had never understood. The hotel had been forced to desegregate, which meant the hotel had been forced to allow me to swim in that pool. And in response, the hotel was daring me to go ahead, get into that murky, taboo cistern, absolutely shunned now by white people. They would boycott, they would forfeit the summertime relief of swimming rather than mingle their white bodies in the same element that held my own. Until I stood in that unnatural dark of that unnatural stillness by that pool, I had never felt white hatred so close and everywhere around me. Now I did, now I knew. This was not an attitude or a preference. This was shotgun serious loathing of me and my kind. The answer to that shotgun was the law. You didn't have to like it, you didn't have to love me, but you did have to obey the law and let me swim. Without the law on my side, I damn straight could not have traveled from New York to Mississippi without horrible damage to my bladder, extreme dehydration, and a variety of humiliating messages imprinted on my soul. Without the law on my side, and after so long, I damn straight could not have stayed in a downtown Jackson Hotel motel, or rented a car at the airport, or ordered a cup of coffee anywhere, or exhibited the idiotic temerity of daring to think about doing anything anywhere that didn't say colored. That's the before and after story of the shotgun and the law. That's the before and after story of white hatred of white black folks. Before, they just hated us. After, they hated us or they didn't hate us. But we were moving now, moving lawfully, see, into the same element that upheld their privileged white bodies. The same water and the same air and sooner or later, the same classroom and the same apartment building and the same workplace because we didn't have some kind of a dream about doing any of these things. We had the law equalizing our rights as American citizens. Affirmative action is a federal policy carrying the weight of law. Its purpose is the same as the desegregation of that Mississippi swimming pool, to equalize our rights as American citizens. Affirmative action policies acknowledge that citizen equality has been denied to us and will be denied to us absent federal intervention. 
California's 1994 Proposition 209 eviscerated affirmative action. With its passage, it became the law that racial and or ethnic identity could not be taken into account in matters of employment or education. On a colorblind basis, we would now see who was really qualified or not. On March 30, 1998, the Chancellor of UC Berkeley convened a press conference to announce the consequences of Proposition 209. He was going to tell everybody the new numbers that compare the 1998 freshman class to the entering class of 97. And he did. And here they are. One, a decline of 64.3% of African Americans. Two, a decline of 56.3% for Chicanos. Three, a decline of 58.9% for Native Americans. Four, a decline from 23.1% to 10.4% for Native Americans. During the question and answer period that followed the administration's official presentation, the chancellor stunned the room by announcing an additional fact. More than 800 minority students with a 4.0 grade point average as well as 1,200 SAT scores had been turned away. Some 24 hours later, Bob Laird, director of undergraduate admissions, elaborated with even more startling figures. More than 1,300 minority students with grade point averages above 4.0 had been also turned away. If you squeeze all of these numbers into anything at all coherent, this is what becomes clear. Proposition 209 is the law. Abiding by that law, the University of California has chosen a freshman class that effectively resegregates higher education. This resegregation furthermore excludes 2,100 so-called minority students with straight A or better records of academic achievement. Given the Chancellor's publicly avowed commitment to intellectual excellence and dem democratic diversity, and given the democratic mandate of public education, this is not on any terms a defensible situation. We have but one option, break the law. It was once against the law for black folks to read and write. It was once against the law for black folks to marry each other. It was once against the law for black folks to vote. It was once against the law for black folks to swim in indoor or outdoor public waters. We had to break those laws or agree to the slaveholders' image of us, three-fifths of a human being. When the law is wrong, when the law produces and enjoins manifest and undue injury to a people, when the law punishes one people and privileges another, it is our moral obligation to break the law. The law is not God-given. 2,100 minority students with straight A or better grade point averages denied admission to UC Berkeley, to the chancellors of the entire University of California system, I say, break the law. We, the people, will take it from there. I really met June when I was living in Mississippi, and um, it was a very, very hard, difficult time uh, in the 70s, the early 70s. Um, and she came, and she was doing a piece on, on those of us who were, you know, there 
in a struggle, and also she came to meet Mrs. Hamer. Um, and we bonded uh, because she was very um, concerned, um, you know, that we feel connected to the larger world, which, of course, we did not, being in Mississippi. And it is that protectiveness, that, that is the quality that I most think of when I think of June, that she put those small, shining arms around people who seemed to need it. And uh, at that time, I was one of them. And so I became her little sister in a way. And we, we have had a friendship for uh, over 30 years that grew out of her coming to this very terrible place and being this very bright, warm light. She she was very loving and saw everything, it seemed to me, and had such a passion to tell the world about the suffering of the world. She was always telling the world about its own suffering, which, which is, is one way of bringing it to the light, to consciousness, so that things can be changed. It's very hard to imagine a world without June Jordan in it. She spoke to every issue with all of her heart and all of her passion. I can remember when she accepted the position at UC Berkeley, I certainly don't think that Berkeley realized how much it would itself be transformed by her presence on that campus. She's also left many legacies, and I suppose uh, in order to get through the pain of, of, of trying to imagine the world without June. I have to think about the many seeds she planted, the many uh, young people who are taking the poetry they learned to write with her, the way they learned to think about themselves politically. Um, June was never affiliated with a political organization, um, at least not in recent years, but I think she did more than anyone else I know to urge people to think politically about the world and about the relationship between their everyday lives and the state of the world. And that sense, she was uh, really a poet. She was a poet in the most radical sense of, of the word. I'm thinking now of her book, His Own Where. Uh, no, actually, Who Look at Me was before that. Uh, and just the way that she managed to put so much of the heart and the soul of, uh, of people in the language. And she also, in that first book, there were paintings. And so you were able to hear the sounds of the people in the paintings as if they were speaking. Um, and I think that this had a great impact on all of the writers who had probably been afraid to trust that the way their grandparents sounded, the way their parents sounded, was actually okay. So she was, she was even doing that, encouraging young people, encouraging young writers, and just uh, being in the role of someone who said, it's okay, this is fine, this, this will actually reconnect you to yourself, to your, your people, to your ancestors. And so as a medicine for the world, I would say read everything that June has written. And if you can uh, get tapes of her reading, I mean, you, you could hear how she sounds. It's, it's just phenomenal. I've listened to her for 30 years, but hearing her this morning, 
I'm stunned all over again with her clarity and her passion and her truthfulness. Our own shadows disappear as the feet of thousands by the tens of thousands pound the fallow land into new dust that, rising like a marvelous pollen, will be fertile. Even as the first woman, whispering imagination to the trees around her, made for righteous fruit from such deliberate defense of life as no other still will claim inferior to any other safety in the world. The whispers, too, they intimate to the inmost ear of every spirit now aroused. They carousing in ferocious affirmation of all peaceable and loving amplitude sound, a certainly unbounded heat from the baptismal fire where, yes, there will be fire. And the babies cease alarm as mothers Raising arms and heart high as the stars so far unseen, nevertheless hurl into the universe a moving force, irreversible as light years traveling to the open eye. And who will join this standing up? And the ones who stood without sweet company will sing and sing back into the mountains, and if necessary, even under the sea. We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for. goodness, this is uh, surely um, the most overwhelming night of my life, and uh, I just feel so deeply cheered, and uh, thank you very much, all of you, thank you, this is, uh, this is a really big deal for me, and um, gosh, I, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you leave uh, home, when I leave home, anyway, people always say to me, how come you're so happy? <laughs> I'm like, check it out. <laughs> I wish you'd be happy. It's, uh, there's so much, um, there's so much uh, faith, actually, everywhere. And so much willing love, I find. And uh, as I said earlier this week about my students, if, uh, if you knew my students, <laughs> you'd be happy. You'd be happy and uh, you, you would get yourself together. And that's what I try to do. We squeeze it out, food. We pull it out the stops and we push it to the tops. And we hijack the sun and we flavor the rain. And we unpack the guns and we work and plant the pain. Oh! Four, three, two, one. Somebody say. I think that with regard to the Poetry with People program, it's pretty much the 
classic um, embodiment of exactly what it is that uh, June stood for. Um, one of the things that she promoted was this idea that students are not going to take themselves seriously unless we who teach them honor and respect them in every practical way that we can. She was literally, to me, this one-stop sort of shopping stop of everything you needed to believe in the power of your voice. To me, she was like a, a mentor, a mother, a microphone, um, an amplifier, a superhero, uh, even a fashion stylist, and absolutely a soldier. June believed that revolutionary possibility always takes place. Revolutions always take place on the basis of great hope and rising expectations. And she gave us grounds for great hope, despite all sorts of adversity. And her expectations of us, of the future of this country and of this world, never flagged. And maybe I could just close with a short poem that she wrote years back. It's called Calling on All Silent Minorities, and I think it gives you an idea of her idea of hope. Hey, she wrote, come on, come out, wherever you are. We need to have this meeting at this tree. Ain't even been planted yet. We've got work to do. was edited and produced by Erica Bridgman at the KPFA Studios and narrated by Louis Sawyer. Special thanks to Jane Heaven, Bob Baldock, and Amy Goodman for recorded materials. Thanks also to Susan Stone 